Why is employee engagement such a big deal? If you're a frazzled business owner, manager, or executive, you're probably wondering why can't people just do their jobs? And if you're an employee, you're probably wondering why nobody upstairs cares. We need a bridge over these troubled waters, and today's guest, business leadership expert Mark C. Crowley, tells us how to do that without getting all wet. She's a respected and trusted business advisor, an Ivy League business expert, best-selling author, and no-nonsense lawyer. She's Hannah Hassel-Kelchner. Whether you're an entrepreneur or an intrapreneur working for someone else, I want to give you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Because no one likes getting blindsided by what you don't know but somehow should or getting stuck paying for it later. Think of it as a mini-MBA and School of Hard Knocks wrapped in one and on steroids. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, brought to you by Business MO, LLC. Mark C. Crowley is a recognized workplace thought leader. He's a regular contributor to Fast Company magazine, and he's been published in the Seattle Times, the Huffington Post, Reuters, CEO Magazine, the Great Places to Work Institute, and USA Today. And if you're on LinkedIn, you might have been one of the over 350,000 people who saw his popular article on employee engagement. Mark is also the author of the book Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And he says his mission is to fundamentally change how we lead and manage people in the workplace. His book is currently part of the curriculum at five U.S. universities and not only shows why traditional leadership practices have failed, but also why we must adopt an entirely new mindset with respect to how we motivate employee performance in the future. Forbes magazine recently spotlighted his groundbreaking work, calling it the future of workplace leadership. Since we're all about great business leadership and improving workplaces here at Business Confidential Now, it's a privilege and honor to have Mark with us here today. Welcome to Business Confidential, Mark. Thank you so very much, Hannah. You know, I'd like to start with some basics so that we're, we all have the same understanding about terminology and why employee engagement is such a big deal these days. Now, I joked in the intro about employers just wanting employees to do their jobs, but clearly there's something going on in the white space on the organizational chart that I'd like to talk about with you today. So what exactly does employee engagement mean to you, Mark? Uh, Engagement to me means that somebody is willing to put in discretionary effort, Hannah, Uh, meaning that you know, when they're, when they're driving to work, when they're driving home from work, when they're in their free time, that there's a joy in their thinking and feeling about their work experience where they're thinking about what they might want to do. And there's an ambition, there's creativity, there's putting in even extra hours, doing those things because they feel really great about the company they work for, about the person they work for specifically, how they're treated, how they're cared for, uh, whether they're growing, whether they're doing meaningful work, and whether they're appreciated. Those would be the sort of the, the major components of driving people to feel that way about work. And we know, um, interestingly, the conference board reported a few years ago that more people in America enjoy their commutes to and from work than the work itself. So we have a huge problem there. 
Well, besides enjoying the commute more, which in some cities can be, <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty damning statement. If people enjoy being stuck in traffic and, and having to navigate uh, trains and crowds and noise and not to mention the time that they, they take, because the average commute time in some cities is pretty long. I mean, why does employee engagement matter to a company? Well, I, I mean, you really pinned it down. It's it's perverse. We're not supposed to. We're spending the majority of our lives at work. You would think intuitively that we would want people to be happy there, that we would want people to be feeling good about their work environment. And yet, you know, historically, we've never been concerned about those things. We've historically thought that we're going to give you a paycheck and a job. And if you don't perform, then we'll find somebody else to do that for you. And this is the traditional leadership theory that we have, you know, sort of been pushing up against and, you know, use this language of white space. There are some organizations that have looked at this and said, this is preposterous. We don't want to work in an environment like this. We don't want our people coming and going. We don't want people feeling threatened and fear. Um, but this is the way we run organizations. There's an article in the New York Times that just came out about an organization called HubSpot that is just – not only Dickensian in the way that they run their organization where they're just firing people unilaterally and they're, it's, also, it's additionally Orwellian where they're using language like, well, Bill's no longer here. He's graduated to better things. And so we sort of rationalize that this is normal and it's not normal. It's simply not normal, Hannah. I appreciate the sentiment. I've been involved with organizations that had that type of approach and, you know, as an employee, I understand that it's no fun, believe me. And so I'm being a little contrary because in my experience, so many managers out there do take that approach. And now they and they've come up learning from other leaders thinking, well, this is how I have to be when I have that seat in that corner office. And my way or the highway, there's a lot of fear-based organizations where people aren't comfortable speaking truth to power. You know, the way it should be and the way it is there's a gap there, which is why probably there is so much dissatisfaction and pent-up frustration of employees in the workplace. And to me, it seems that there is a tremendous missed opportunity for management and for business owners if they could tap into that. So I'd like to explore that with you. And I mean, yes, employee engagement matters, but for the longest time, people haven't paid much attention to it, have they? No, you know, your introduction, you indicated that I had an article on LinkedIn that had 350 readers, and it had 350,000 readers, and I think that the reason why that article was so popular, it was titled, Why Engagement Hasn't Gotten Any Better. And two and a half years ago, Gallup released their statistic that was the shot heard around the world that just 30% of American workers are engaged in their jobs. And so that should be a stunning and striking number, and it should have stimulated all kinds of things that you know, organizations should have and could have done to reverse this and to win back the minds and hearts of their workers. Instead, two and a half years later, the numbers have actually declined. <laughs> They've slightly gotten worse, which means all whatever people are doing isn't working. And for the most part, I believe that 
the reason it's not working is because we're moving peas on the plate. We're really not doing any of the things that are going to make a difference to people. And so there's a lot of superficial efforts being made. And what really needs to happen, Hannah, in, in my opinion, and uh, this is the whole thesis of my work, is that we have people in the 21st century that want and need things that are completely different than what people went to work for you know, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years ago when our traditional leadership theory was born. People went to work to get a paycheck, and the paycheck was sufficient because it allowed them to meet their, their most primary needs for you know, a roof over their head and food on their table, and the more money they were able to make, the better they were able to provide that. But it has become more easy or easier for people to really meet those basic needs. What's happening is, is that people are looking for much more, and companies are unwilling to do that. We're still giving people a paycheck and expecting them to deliver their performance, and if their performance isn't good, we still believe that replacing that person is the best thing. And that's just a failed strategy because people are looking to do more meaningful work. They want to know that the work that they do every day has a, you know, that it matters, that it's that it's impacting people, and they want to know that their organizations intend to grow them and see a long-term future for them instead of thinking that, you know, it's just a short-term, you know, quid pro quo kind of a relationship. They want to be valued and appreciated. And so one of the things that you, I think, astutely said is that you've got a manager in place today who's just passing on what they were given. And what we need are organizations to be courageous and say, hey, what worked in the 19th and 20th century no longer works, and we need to reinvent how we manage and how we lead. And that, unfortunately or fortunately, really, um, means that we need to reinvent who we put into leadership roles. We need more caring, supportive uh, people going into roles. And, you know, I have this binary question, which I tell, you know, CEOs to use and all leaders, frankly, which is if you have a candidate in front of you and you're thinking about putting them into a management role, you need to be convinced that they care as much about other people as they care about themselves. Because if all you can see is evidence that they've cared about their own recognition and their own career growth and their own wealth, um, their own status within an organization, and they're not advocates for the people that they're managing, you should not be choosing them for management roles. This is a big gap today, is that we've got a lot of people in management roles where the employees working for them say, all they do is care about themselves and they don't care about me. In fact, when they start to see me succeeding or having some you know, achievements that are getting recognition, they want to squash me back because they perceive me as a threat. And this is sort of the scarcity mentality that's pervaded in business for a really long time. And when numbers aren't being hit, we go into fear management and start tormenting people and oppressing people into performance and threatening them with their jobs. And none of this works because at the end of the day, we human beings thrive on positive emotions and feelings and emotions drive human behavior and what we care about and what we commit ourselves to. And if we're giving people negative emotions, if we're making people fear, feel fear, we're making people feel unsupported, uncared for, unloved, if you will, all it does is shut people down and it takes them out of their optimal level of performance. And so what we need are managers who recognize that people have these needs 
And by giving them and giving them in a sustained basis that we're going to put people into a level of production and productivity that will actually transcend the level of productivity that people are aiming for right now. This is not only uh, a, a more human way of managing people, but ultimately it, because it puts people into a level of complete engagement where they can feel comfortable and safe doing their work, they're immersing themselves into it, and ultimately that leads to greater productivity and ultimately greater profitability for the organizations. Well, that all makes a lot of sense, Mark, but then how come more companies aren't doing it? Because they're being, you know, they're profitable. Well, you know, my son went to went to Cal Berkeley and was in a fraternity that was, you know, the things that they did to him were just absolutely insane. I said to him, I said, well, now, you know, the next class is coming in. Are you doing the same thing? And he goes, it's the tradition of the fraternity to do the exact same thing. And this is sort of the mindset of, well, what was done to me should be done to everybody else. And so what I really feel as a man, you know, my, my, the title of my book is Lead from the Heart, which couldn't sound softer, weaker, spoken by somebody who doesn't get business. But because I spent a whole career in financial services and, and excelled and brought all sorts of great you know, teams into greatness uh, and, and being willing to use that language, I think I have a voice to say to people, I'm giving you permission to manage the way you know is best. When we think about the greatest leaders in our lives, the people that made the biggest difference to us, the people who challenged us, the people who believed in us, the people who appreciated and expressed it to us, the people that made us feel safe, the people who, who took the time to teach what they knew, all of those kinds of things. We, we hold these people in the highest regard in our lives. And, you know, these are the kinds of people when we work for them, they make us scale mountains for them because we feel so great working for them. And yet, we don't apply what we know to be true when we start managing people, and that's just insanity. So I'm, I'm really saying, you know, go with what you know works for you. You will thrive, and your people will thrive. And, as a leader and, and, and as a team of performance, that's the way it works. Well, what would you recommend then to someone in that hiring position or in a senior management position who needs to promote someone? They've got an opening. And how should they, in your view, prepare that person for this expanded leadership role? Because you're talking about managing people at some point. It's not just about their technical knowledge, whether it's in engineering or finance or marketing. I mean, at, at some point, they're going to want to move up in their careers, and that means managing people. Well, if this is the $64,000 question in leadership. Because what happens is, let's, let's call our top salesperson Susie. Susie, month in and month out, everybody in the company knows Susie's the best. And you go by her station, and she's got all of her, you know, sort of the trinkets of success, and she's very ex excited to tell you about what, what's going on and how many sales she's had. And there's, let's say, you know, 15 other people in the sales department uh, but Susie is just consistently the best, and she gets salesperson of the year, and then the next year she gets it, and management gets together, and they say, you know what, we got to do something with Susie. We have to do something with her, or we're going to lose her, because all of our competitors know Susie's terrific. So the managers say, well, why don't we make her the sales manager of the other 14 people here, because... That will keep her here. She'll get the status and recognition she wants, and we're going to pay her more because she's a sales manager now. 
And she's obviously going to go over there and teach those other 14 people how to be just like her. So all in favor, aye. And so what happens then is Susie goes over there and she's nowhere near the success that anybody estimated. And the reason is, is because the things that made her successful as a salesperson that made her the best salesperson is she's singularly focused. She's focused on how much money she can make. She wants to be number one. She wants to be non-collaborative. She's focused on herself and uh, she doesn't need to teach anyone anything because she doesn't want anybody to know what she knows. She's, she wants to be number one and she's competitive and she's going to do those kinds of things. So she goes over and starts managing people. Is she going to teach the people that, you know, that, that are under her the skills that she had to be that successful? No. Is she going to recognize them? No, because she's going to be threatened by them. The boss comes by and goes, Bill, you're the new top salesperson now that Susie's over here. Susie doesn't feel so good about that because she needs that kind of recognition. It's just what her needs are. And so the point is, is that we routinely take people and we put them into management roles when they lack the very skills that make them great managers. Interestingly, you know, I'm a San Diego Padres fan. They're a horrible team and they've been horrible forever. Um, but back in the 70s and 80s, they had a backup catcher, which should tell you something. He's a lifetime 220 hitter, 27 lifetime home runs over a series of 10 years. This was a mediocre player beyond belief. And yet... He happens to be the head coach of the San Francisco Giants and will go into the Hall of Fame as one of the greatest managers ever. He's won three World Series. His name is Bruce Bochy. The point is, is that he was put here to be a manager. He wasn't put here to be a great star. And sometimes our star performers need to be validated in ways where we give them a title and keep them in the role they have and not be seduced into thinking that they're going to be good managers. We need to look for people who have the skills, the, the, the motivations to care about other people, to grow other people, to develop other people, to almost be selfless in helping other people succeed, knowing that by doing that, they will inherently succeed as a manager and their teams will thrive and their careers will thrive. It works that way. But too often, we put these people in who just have it in for themselves, and from the get-go, they're never going to succeed that way. How can a business leader recognize that in an employee if the employee isn't already managing someone? Well, that's a great question. I think interviewing people, you know, you can ask them about their lives. You don't have to just say, tell me about what you've been doing in your job for the last two years. And so one question that I loved asking was, tell me about somebody in your life who you helped, who you taught, who you, uh, you know, who, who's, who through your own influence, you amplified their success through their careers, through maybe, maybe helping them be better in something in school, spending extra time with them, mentoring them. Tell me about some of the people that you've helped. And the people that have an inclination to lead this way will not have any problem coming up with. Starting when I was in the third grade, I had a kid who was struggling in math and I taught him what I knew. Or, you know, I was a great pitcher and I taught all the people on my team who were pitchers how to throw like I did. They just, it's just in them. If they look at you and they can't give you an answer, where like, well, you know, I really don't know anyone right offhand, I would not put those people into management because what you're really looking for, people have a natural inclination for this. By the way, you know, Gallup has confirmed all of this, and other research has confirmed this as well, that the, the inclinations that we know really lead to the kind of success that we want in leadership, 
it, for all intents and purposes, only three in ten people have that. And, and really, two of them have it sort of inbred. They come into the world with it. And another one can learn it through coaching. So that means there's a lot of people that we might be thinking would be good managers who really don't have those instincts. And so we have to have a much higher discipline in who we put into management roles. I really believe if an organization wants to fix engagement, that the fastest, most effective way to do that is to pick people who care about other people for management roles. That would, it, it, above all things, if you have managers who are advocates for other people, and are comfortable in seeing other people's success rather than comfortable that they thrive in it, that they want to make other people better, that they, that's how they define themselves. If you can find those kinds of people going into management roles, you could turn a country, company around really, really quickly and profoundly. That's fascinating. I'm also curious about your thoughts on how to measure engagement. What do you think are good measurements? Well, you know, that's, a, that's another issue is that uh, it's surprising Gallup has discovered that, and, and I, I work a lot with them, and I work with the conference board, and, you know, everybody sort of comes up with the same thing, that it's a third, a third, a third. A third is engaged, a third is just shows up, and a third is really unhappy. Um, but in the best organizations, 65% is sort of the top number of highly engaged, so two-thirds of your workforce so at any one point in time, that's sort of the golden number. And yet a lot of companies will create scoring methodologies for engagement that, uh, you know, that sort of make it look like they're in the 90%. So they pat themselves on the back and they don't do anything because they think they're really excelling. And I, I, I think what I would urge companies to do is to go the opposite direction. Make the standards so high that nobody can ever come in and say, we're already done. It needs to be something that you're vigilant with. And there are different scoring methodologies. Different companies have different ones. But you know, ultimately, you know, Gallup, you can go on Google and Google the 12 questions that they ask. And you can ask those 12 questions and then, you know, score those numbers on a consistent basis and continue to use them. And I think it needs to be drilled down to the individual manager level so that you're saying, you know, this is the standard that we want. We want you to be contributing to this, that it's not just a global number and that people are held accountable for this so that then people are sharing best practices, they're modeling people who are doing well, and you then accelerate the process. This is the goal. When we're looking at 30% engaged and 70% either not engaged or actively disengaged, which 2 in 10 people in America are, where they're effectively so unhappy at work that they want to be saboteurs and work against the success of their organization, this is not good for business. So we're really looking for what are the big moves and unfortunately, the reason we haven't made any major moves in the engagement number is because we continue to pretty much do what we've always done. And so what I'm saying is, is that human beings need something very different. They need a different kind of manager. And every organization that has figured this out, where they create an environment where people feel safe and not threatened, where they have a boss that is actively trying to grow them, challenging them, rewarding them, giving them opportunities to really, really maximize their own human potential, appreciating them, giving them a sense of their long-term future with the organization and not making them feel vulnerable. These are the companies that are thriving in our society today. And perfect example of two companies that come to mind, one would be Google, you know, which they're, in their 10 years since their IPO, their stock price is up 1,265% 
irrefutable how successful that company has been, and they're masters at everything that I'm describing here. There's another organization called SAS. They've had nearly 40 years of consecutive years of record revenue. It's one of the great first organization in the world to ever be recognized as the best global workplace. And this is an organization that is generous to a fault with people. And we think, you know, we need to squeeze people. And they're saying, no, we reap what we sow. The more generous you are with people, the more you're going to get from people. And they're loyal. Their turnover rate is under 5%, which means they don't have to spend money on recruiting. They don't have to spend money on training or other than, you know, redeveloping people and growing them. But they're not doing basic training. And all of those costs are eliminated. So they reinvest them in their people. The customer service goes up because people are there longer and they know the people they're dealing with. They have a history with them. It's the gift that keeps on giving. And yet, um, I've written extensively about this, but some people are just going to be hard-headed and they're just going to continue to want to do it the way they're doing. And ultimately, I believe that they're going to have a competitive disadvantage where if you're going up an organization, going up against an organization like SaaS or you're going up uh, uh, you know, competitively against Google, you're going to get clobbered. You're not going to be able to attract the same kind of people. You're not going to be able to you know, have the same kind of innovation. You're going to ultimately have customers beating a path to go to those other organizations because of what they're doing over there, and you're going to be forced into this. I'd rather say to a CEO, isn't it time for you to embrace a culture that would make you proud, that would leave a legacy, that would knowingly lead to greater success than to continue with the old ways that, you know, that we've, we've embraced and, and have done so much harm to people? People shouldn't be this unhappy in their jobs, and we shouldn't have stagnant you know, disengagement. We should have this number being going up higher and higher and higher every week, every month, every year, and it's just not happening. And I think we need some bravery, some courage, some heart. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like a great plan. I'm curious about your book, The uh, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. What prompted you to write that? That's a big question. So I was working for an organization, one of the largest financial institutions in the country, and a few years earlier they had asked me to take a big leap and to um, move from uh, basically from retail banking into investments. So uh, I had no background. To this day, I've never sold a stock or a bond, but I went out and got all my securities licenses and ended up managing about 2,000 uh, stockbrokers across the country. And we had phenomenal success. So everything that I'm talking about is the way that I manage people, and, and they were a little leery of somebody coming in who had none of their experience and none of the knowledge that they had. But nevertheless, what I did with them in terms of managing them led to record revenue, record profitability, and I was named leader of the year, and I thought this is what I want to do for a while. And then the bank ended up failing, and so I stayed with the acquirer until I realized this was a company I really didn't want to work with. So what ended up happening was I made a decision that I wanted to fulfill a, a, a dream that I had had for a long time, which was to write a book about certain practices that I had known in my, my life and career had this just amazing impact on people. It made them loyal. It made them want to do phenomenal work for me. And I had refined these over a course of a career, over 20 years, and I wanted to share those. And I had a conversation with a friend of mine one day, and he said, you're really going to have to explain why these work. Otherwise, people will think they're anecdotal. They'll think they're something that worked for you but won't work for everyone else. And it was a really insightful comment, and it challenged me because I had given it no thought at all. 
So what I decided to do was to start looking for evidence to support the thesis that I was affecting the hearts of people. That's what I believed uh, in the final analysis was that I was affecting people so deeply that made them want to work so hard and do great work for me consistently over, you know, didn't matter, matter what kind of role I had or where I was in the organization. I started off very low in an organization, worked my way up into two national level positions, and I knew they worked and ultimately just needed to find some validation to convince a cynical audience that, you know, that, that the heart has a role in this. And so, Hannah, I think the most most amazing piece of information that I got was that um, I reached out, to, you know, went outside of business and, and spoke with a world-class cardiologist, somebody who had written a couple of books, who had done thousands of heart surgeries, who's featured uh, very frequently on PBS radio and, you know, sort of the expert on cardiology. And I wrote her a letter and said, my thesis is that I have been affecting the hearts of people. Is there any science that would validate this? And she said, come see me. So I went and saw her, and she didn't even have a you know handshake. She just looked at me, and she said, you figured out something we have figured out just recently ourselves. For 300 years, we believed the heart was just a blood pump, a magnificent blood pump, and all of our cognitive ability is in our brains. That's what we believed. That's what I was taught. I graduated top of my class at NYU. I was taught that the heart, whenever you're working on it, is just like a carburetor, you know, a car part. There's nothing other than just a part there, so don't get caught up in any anything you hear. And she said, but through the course of my career, I started realizing that people were coming in with heart problems, and I started to talk to them about what was going on in their lives, and I realized that whatever was in their biography was affecting their biology. If they were under strain at work, if they were having you know problems in their relationships, uh, they were being affected in their hearts. So she said, it made no sense to me that the heart could be responding this way if it were just a piece of machinery. So she said, I reached out and found an organization called the, the Institute of Heart Math, which is in Northern California and for the past 25 years has been studying the intelligence of the heart. And they and other researchers have principally confirmed that there's intelligence dispersed throughout our entire body. It's not limited to the brain. That the heart itself is a sensing, feeling organ and is in constant communication with the mind. And so what we feel translates into what our thoughts are. So my thesis was feelings and emotions drive human behavior, and she's saying, yes, this is exactly right. And so when you are giving people what they need on a human basis, you're putting them into an optimal level of performance. You couldn't be doing any better in the way you're approaching people from a management standpoint. And I will tell you honestly, because this confirmed a whole lifetime, you know, there, there are other circumstances that relate to why I would ever even in, intended to manage like this in the first place that have to do with my upbringing. But I had tears in my eyes because it was just massive confirmation that what I was talking about was so, just so amazing, so completely different than what we've ever believed worked in a management position. And I looked back and realized, you know, I've been managing people. I'm a man, and I've been working in the dog-eat-dog world of financial services and not just doing well, but, you know, routinely excelling at really unbelievable levels and getting promotion after promotion and realizing it all came down to having the courage to manage this way in an environment where no one else was doing it. 
And so I I had thought I'm going to write this book and I'm going to go back to work. And instead, now I'm realizing I was put on this planet to spread this message that I'm the Pied Piper for completely reinventing how we manage and how we lead. And it all comes down to accepting that the people that we're managing are human beings first and they have needs. And if you support those needs, you're going to get unbelievable performance. And if you continue to manage people in ways we've traditionally done, which to negate those needs, you're just going to have massive disengagement, turnover, and you're going to underperform uh, consistently. And that's just, I don't think any of us want that. Well, it's certainly not good for the bottom line. So it's not healthy for the business, and it's certainly not healthy for employees, which is why so many people are stressed. And then that stress manifests itself in all kinds of diseases and not just unhappiness, but, I mean, physical manifestations, which don't help anybody. So, I mean, this research is fascinating, Mark. If if somebody wanted to learn more about your book, where could they find it? Uh, the best place to go is Amazon.com. Uh, it's just a simple, most efficient way of getting anything anymore. So um, that would be the best place to go. And if they want to learn anything about me, uh, they can go to uh, leadfromtheheart.com, which is the name of the book, or markcrowley.com. Either way, it gets you to the exact same place. Perfect, perfect. We're also going to have a link to the book on the show page at businessconfidentialradio.com. This research about your book has been fascinating, and I'm glad we had an opportunity to talk about the mindset change that needs to happen in order to begin the process for more employee engagement. I'm curious about your mindset and how you had the courage to manage in this way, especially in an industry that is not known for the sort of the warm and cuddly stuff. Would you mind sharing one of your influencers with us? Well, um, let, me, let me tell you, this is, I want to make sure that your audience knows this is not warm and cuddly. This is caring, which is, I think, very, very different. Um, I, if you were, went up to anybody who used to work for me and say, describe Mark Crowley in one word, you would think it would be heart, and instead it would be demanding. And my belief is that by giving people what they need, by supporting people in so many ways, um, and really giving people exactly what they need in order to thrive, then, then you should expect a higher level of performance, right? You're giving people everything they need, and so let's raise the bar here. And by the way, that's fulfilling to people when they're seeing themselves achieve things that they didn't ever imagine they would be able to. You know, the very first person that I ever worked for uh, was the head of retail banking for an organization that I started out right out of college. And I never saw another person like him. But uh, interestingly, for the next 20 years, I never worked for anybody like him. But he was somebody who, you know, uh, you'd come into your office and you'd find a handwritten note saying, don't think I didn't notice how long you've been, how hard you've been working on this project. And don't think I didn't see that you were here on Saturday. And don't think that um, for a moment that I don't appreciate everything that you put into this job. And who gets those kinds of letters from the head of retail banking, handwritten? And I still have them, and I've got several of them. I remember him taking us into a meeting, and I wrote about this in, the, in my book, not specifically this, but about the company, because it was on the ropes and potentially going to fail. And he brought us all into a meeting, and he said, I need to bring you into the cone of silence. I need to share information with you that nobody else in the organization wants me to, thr- wants me to share because they think it's, you know, that it's 
puts us in jeopardy. But you need to know it so that you can do your job. And do I have your confidence? And everyone in the room said, absolutely. And the, 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 the trust that was built there, the, the loyalty that was built there. And the bank ended up failing, but these people forfeited their entire, they gave up their incentive compensation. They were working for a company that they realized wasn't going to survive. They didn't know what their futures were, but they stayed with that organization till the end because of this guy. And it was terribly inspirational. It was just, this is what you want. You want to work for somebody who believes in you, who, you know, wants to bring you into their, into their confidence and, and, and trust you implicitly to do the right things with information and who values this. And um, I'm still friends with him, you know, 25 years later and, and see him as somebody who just modeled this. And he ended up running two banks, was the president of those organizations and did phenomenally. So, you know, there's, there's no arguing that this is, this is the right way. There's no arguing that this doesn't drive better performance. It's just so counterintuitive to what we think is the way to get people to do performance, you know, to, 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 to do work. And we just sort of need to clear the whiteboard and start all over and say, if you were going to be managing yourself, how would you want to be managed? And it sort of writes itself from there. Terrific advice, Mark. And I am so grateful for your time and for the insights that you've shared on this hot topic of improving employee engagement. Thank you so much. My pleasure, Hannah. Thank you. Giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Keltner. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. Thank you for joining me today on Business Confidential Now. You can get more information about today's guest and the resources we mentioned during today's show in the episode notes that are located on our website businessconfidentialradio.com Sometimes we even include some bonuses and goodies so be sure to check it out. That website again is businessconfidentialradio.com And also don't forget to subscribe to the show. That is the easiest way to keep up with the show and our guests those thought leaders, experts and authors who are transforming businesses behind closed doors around the world. Let them help you too. Subscribe today for easy access to the business information you need to succeed. You know, the reason we call the show Business Confidential now is because you don't have time to wait. So just do it. Subscribe now and leave a review. We want to hear from you. We want you to be part of our growing Business Confidential Now family. Tell your friends and colleagues so they can subscribe too. Because the more subscribers we have, the more great guests we can bring you and the more business intelligence you'll have available to ignite and fuel your continued business success. Have an idea or a topic, a guest that you'd like to hear on Business Confidential now? Contact me at the website, businessconfidentialradio.com and connect with me on social media too. We'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner will be back with more of the business intelligence and inside scoop you need to succeed. Till then.